This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho Physical Therapy. So, Steve, I understand you have a Sports and Ortho memory that you'd like to share? I do. Uh, just recently, I actually suffered an injury. It was a chronic injury uh, from uh, firefighting and paramedicking. I tore my shoulder and separated my AC joint right at the beginning of the pandemic. How do you feel right now? I, I feel I feel great. Can you um, lift your hands over your shoulder? I, I, can, I can do all <laughs> of that. But what was crazy was at the time, uh, they weren't doing shoulder surgeries. So I did not know what I was going to do until I was presented with the option of going to sports and orthophysical therapy. So you theoretically could have been out for a long time. I could have been out for a very long time. And I was told that the shoulder surgery I was presented with was going to keep me out a very long time as well. So you would have automatically lost your spot. Yes. And potentially be out for a long time. There'd be a loss of income as well uh, for like overtime and what yeah. have you. Right? Oh yeah, for sure. So what uh, what kind of things did Dahlia have you do? So uh, Dahlia set me up with uh, her, one of her therapists, Claire, Claire from England, uh, and Claire beat me up for three months straight. Well, you had it coming. So <laughs> it. I did, but uh, we did all kinds of stretches. I'll tell you what, I've had other injuries where I've went to other facilities outside of the job that I'm currently at, and they did not do the hands-on manipulation, the cupping, the stretching, the massages, the massage machine they were using uh, on me, uh, all sorts of stuff. Needling, Claire did some needling on me, and, and I'll tell you what, that needling, it was like, uh, it, I can't explain it to you, <laughs> but uh, it definitely, like, I could f instantly feel, it was instant gratification when she was doing the needling on me. So how long did it take to get you back? So I did three sessions a week for approximately three months, a little under three months, and uh, I didn't need to have surgery. I rehabbed that shoulder back, and uh, it, it was great. And on top of all of it, I had a thing going on at home where I couldn't be exposed to the virus or multiple people because of the virus, and Dahlia had gone out of her way to schedule me so that I would not have those experiences and I could do a lot of the rehab by myself with Claire. And it, it, she just... Dahlia went above and beyond to accommodate me like she does, and she goes above and beyond for all of her clients. Um, and I'm truly, uh, truly grateful to her and Sports North for Physical Therapy. Well, there you have it. Living testimony by our own Chicago's Bravest Story, Steve. Sports and Ortho, you can look them up on sportsandortho.net. I mean, they got a location everywhere, so. For all you up north, uh, Edison Park for sure, Mount Greenwood for you south. Brand new Oak Lawn, I believe. So sportsandortho.net. Engine one, engine four, truck two, truck ten, England 82, battalion two. Fire 1020 North Main. Help is on the way. Welcome back to Chicago's Bravest Stories. We are here with a couple special guests, and uh, just want to say thanks to our guest host, Nick Felber, who all, you all remember from episode 27. You might not remember him as much as you remember his uh, partner, Waffles. So, Nick, thanks for coming in. 
Thanks for having me. But uh, our guest today is uh, Pete Van Dorp, who is a, so am I right, 33 years you were with CFD? Yeah. 33 years, uh, retired, and it seems like you were even busier in your retirement than yeah. you were at the... Depends how you define busy, but <laughs> I mean, maybe not on the fire end of it, but... Uh... Yeah, well, you uh, you went from, uh, you left at, when you left, you were director of training, and uh, that that's what you left as, and then you went to the suburbs to be a chief. Yeah, uh, assistant chief to start with, so... Um... Algonquin Lincoln Hills Fire Protection District. Okay. And I did a couple years as assistant chief there and then a couple years as chief. And then 2019, April 1st, 2019. Okay. One of, one of the things that I, you know, wanted to get to because we're going we're gonna to go back. We're going to go back. But before we get too far into it. Do you just call me old? No, 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 no. <laughs> I think a seasoned career. Okay. A seasoned yeah. career. Fair enough. I'm old. It's all right. <laughs> but... You, I saw something that was super impressive. You gave a speech in front of uh, Senate? Yeah. Senate, Senate committee? Some Senate committee or other, yeah. And it was about high-rise and... Uh, it, it was mostly about um, flammability of furniture was, was what it was. If you were just to take that caption of you sitting in front, it was one of those things where usually somebody's in trouble... Yeah. explaining themselves away yeah, right. in front of the committee, but you were actually there to provide information. Provide testimony. It's, it's an interesting experience because the, what you see there is the show and tell part. Right. You know, which is fine because every issue or whatever cause or whatever needs the show and tell. But a uh, little detail I learned is that the actual recorded testimony is not what you say there. It's what you submit in writing. Really? Which is, when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because yeah. they want to get it right. People you know, aren't used to speaking in public, perhaps, or whatever. So that uh, what goes into the record, is my understanding, is what you submitted in writing. So a little interesting detail, just to make sure that it, they get it right, right? So and you also, had to submit a written... A, a written statement, which is reviewed well ahead of time, right? They want no surprises. You it's know, it's so. been fact-checked a thousand times uh, by it, assistants it, they and just, what have you. They know that it's not going to be anything that's going to embarrass anybody or cause any undue... I mean, you're not right. there to make a, you know, it's not a protest. It's not that sort of thing. You're, you're testifying before a committee like you would testify in court. They want you prepared. They want you prepped. Makes perfect sense. And how, how did that come about? I know so, you were doing work with UL. Yeah, it's kind and... of a convoluted story. So it really they wanted UL there um, so that it, it's an interesting thing. So um, the, the form that we sit in that we all know is a big problem in the fire department, uh, fire problem today, right? Because it's so flammable. What a lot of people don't quite understand is that it's filled with fire retardants. A lot of firemen don't know that. It's filled, you know, and it's still as bad as it is. Well, the fire retardants are carcinogenic. And so there's growing, there's growing evidence that the carcinogens are more dangerous than the flammability would be, right? So, that, so there's, how do we get rid of this? How do we change this? There's people wanting to remove it. There's people wanting to keep it. And, you know, it gets complicated stuff. So. Um, UL does that kind of work. In that and kind you're of, talking about underwriters' Underwriters' laboratories, laboratories yeah. right. I mean, that's what they do. Outside of the Fire Safety Research Institute, which I've been involved in, that's what they do. They test stuff. So... Um, they were there to really give the important testimony, and I was there to be the guy in the suit, you know, <laughs> with the years of experience. And I mean, because that's yeah. a piece of what they want, right? So, uh, and they got me because I was involved with the Fire Safety Research Institute. I had a position with the city of Chicago that looked good at the time. And so, you know, the stars kind of lined up, and um, 
Yeah. What uh, what year did you uh, get on with the city? 1980. 1980. After the strike, it's important. Okay. That I make that. Well, <laughs> I, uh, it wasn't when I came out. It was important so that you what, make that uh, distinction. What what month? Yeah. Of 1980. Right, April. <laughs> April? So April 1st, it's interesting. That's part of why I Who retired else? Somebody on else day. came out on April 1st uh, yeah. that we had on this podcast. Really? Yeah, because uh, it was, they thought that it was an April Fool's joke oh, yeah. that they were supposed to, and it was yeah. like, a, this is a joke. Yeah. And you, uh, said, you said you retired April 1st too, right? Well, see, I could pick a date, right? So <laughs> Beautiful. I, so, right, to the day, 39 nice years. Nice number. Yeah, 39 years. You came on in uh, April 1st, and... This is so. Tell us what it was like going to the academy right, like right post strike. Yeah. So, and actually, I never really went to the academy in a traditional sense. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was just a mess, beyond a mess, right? I mean, everything was in disarray. Um, There was really nobody in charge, and and that's a piece of what led to the strike. And that's part of why I wish I could have got my dad here. Maybe we'll get him back because he he was out. You know. Yeah. Um, He was one of the leaders of the band, if you might. Put it that way. Battalion chiefs. There were five battalion chiefs that went out. Your dad didn't have to walk out because at that time, battalion chiefs still weren't part of the union, right? Well, it wasn't really clear who was, right? I mean, they said they were, but, you know, because remember. It it was a gray area at that time? Well, here's the thing is that you didn't have a collective bargaining agreement. So if you don't have a collective bargaining agreement, you can say you're in union or not in union. Yeah. Nobody, you know, it's not really, I mean, the union might say you remember, but if, right. until you have that collective bargaining unit, there's no recognized bargaining unit, right? Okay. So you could be a member of the union. I'm still a member of the union, but I'm not in the bargaining unit anymore. Right. right? So the important thing was, was that post-strike, they became part of the bargaining. Well, you still get a vote uh, on, on certain things, right? Well, nah, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> no? I, I've never, pension issues, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, things, things that come up. So how did that work then? They, you got you got called. You where were you? You were told to report to yeah, to, yeah, to, to somewhere. Just told to report to the to the academy. I mean, I spent time in the academy, but it wasn't a traditional. It's like you know, I'm in the middle of a class that's already been there, and, and it's yeah. kind of like you just fold yourself in. And we're going to do this today. We're going to do that today. Um, they did their best to sort of you know, keep you from really hurting yourself before you hit the street. So you didn't, right. and you didn't have any firefighter experience prior to, to that, right? You, I mean, your dad was on the job, but you had, you know, is that what prompted you to want to get into that is with your dad? You know, it's, it's kind of funny. It was one of those, and this was, I think it's still true today. It's certainly true back then. You know, every firefighter wanted their kid to do something better than, than they did. go to, I mean, these guys didn't right. go to college. A lot of them, you know, it, it was much more a working class sort of, and we could get into that, right? I mean, these were all tradesmen, right. literally, literally. And they wanted their kids, you know, my dad wanted me to be a dentist or what, you know, whatever. But the other side of that coin was when the test came up, take the test because you never know. Right. You know, and so you all, you all took the test because you just never know. So uh, go getting get to that, what was the testing procedure when you applied? You know what? Not much different than it is today. Really? It, it pretty much, I mean, the physical fitness thing was a little more... Um, it was like the CPAT. It really was quite a lot yeah. like the CPAT. You know, hang, drag, whatever, run, jump up and down. Um, and then the, the written exam was pretty much the same thing you see today, which is, if you ask me, is a shame. Yeah. That in 40 years you haven't made any progress in terms of how you're testing folks. That, you know, that's nothing to be proud of to me. That, yeah. You know, that for, for the city to say we have the same, essentially the same selection procedure that we had 40 years ago. 
Did you did you try to change that when you were down at training? Uh, that's something you can't touch, right? I yeah. mean, the hiring process is the city hire, right? The fire oh. department doesn't hire people. The city hires employees, right? So that complicates everything. Um, promotion is pretty much the same way. The city promotes people. The fire department doesn't. So, um, you know, and, and yeah, we, the fire department has, you know, an influence that and all that. But at the end of the day, the city makes those decisions. And it can be a very... Uh, clear distinction, you know, and, and so, no, no, this is not how it's going to go. This is, you know, it's, yeah. our, it's our way. And what they mean, the mayor's office, it's, it's their way. Right. Who was the mayor when you, when you came on there? Good question. Washington, I think. No, he got, uh, he got, so it was, it was still it was, Jane Byrne. Be, be right after Byrne, right? Because yeah, of so the, the strike. That was the strike. So yeah. she was still mayor and then she, you know, lost after that. You didn't really have an academy that, that we all know today, but uh, you, you was, had some basic... I mean, same building, same kind of stuff. <laughs> it, it just, it, it wasn't as organized. All I'd say, it was, it was pretty much mayhem. Yeah. You know, because you had so many different guys going down there. The instructors were whoever they could get, you know, off the street. And, you know, some guys were really great. Well, they, I imagine were, they were scrambling when they put your class through. Oh, it was just, you know, I mean... First, you know, part of the reason you got to remember that one of the, the big drivers for the strike was Manning. Yeah. I mean, this the city was running with three man engines all over the place, you know. Yeah. And uh, so they were short, short, short manpower. And so um, so you have this collecting bargain, collective bargaining unit all of a sudden that says you got to have five guys on every rig. And yeah, they had a little bit of leeway, you know, because we got to hire people, but it was, let's go, giddy up, right? And, you know, and the courts were overseeing all this at the time. You know, by the time that whole thing got settled, um, there was a judge saying, okay, here's your deadline, here's what you got to do. So, yeah, there was just a whole lot of scrambling. So it was get these kids on the street. So how long did it take before you went to your first assignment? Well, they assigned you right out of the academy. So you got a permanent assignment. Oh, really? Yeah. Where, where'd you go? I, I actually went to Engine 89 was my first assignment. Where's that? That is at Peterson and Pulaski. Okay. And, uh, but I didn't spend very much time there. Like I said, time was different, right? So. Did uh, you have to go through EMT school or anything like no, that? No, that they, came, they hadn't started that program that yet. That came long, long later. Yeah. So you, you never got your EMT or anything? Or? Oh, no. Oh, that's awesome. No. You didn't even, you, I, actually, it was an interesting thing. So here, here's my first story. Okay. <laughs> uh, before we got on for the folks listen, I said, don't ask me any fire stories. This isn't a fire story. So, uh, but we were the first group, say that post-strike group, first group of guys that were even expected to get what at the time was Firefighter 3. Okay. All right? So advanced tech firefighter, whatever. We were the first one expected to get that, not for graduation, but within whatever three. And, you know, and they were going to actually require it, right? So we're out of the academy, and, but we're all still studying because they're telling, you know, here's the test, here's the, the uh, deadlines, things like that. So I met the shops one day with my company, and I was actually on Truck 22, where I got detailed to shortly after I wound up at Engineering. And that's in Uptown? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Different place than it is today. Oh, really? Uh, where, where was well, it? I mean, no, I mean, it's a different oh, neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different neighborhood. But anyway, we're sitting in the shops, and I'm reading my, my, my Ista book, right? And two <laughs> salty dogs come swinging by, you know, with their bellies <laughs> hanging out. Hey, kid, take that book and throw it in the garbage. I've never seen anybody put it out of fire by throwing books at it. Ah, <laughs> you know, you're wasting your time. And uh, as I progressed through the ranks and all that and spent my time on the job, you know, I often thought, I wish I could find those two son of bitches. And 
I've put out a lot of fires with this book. Right. Yeah. You, know, you can learn a lot. It's not enough, right? You need both. But right. yeah, you so can. You got a lot of on the job training. Because I remember, like, oh, on yeah. the Kevin Casey podcast, he was saying they kind of rushed him to the academy and it wasn't like a, as detailed process as it is today. Yeah. And then he got, you know, he had basically had a mentor at his firehouse. And, and I tell you, you what, know. it's not, if you, if you can. If you can do it with small enough groups, it's not necessarily a bad process. So my, my dad's generation, their, their story would be um, their academy was physical fitness, close order drill, rules and regulations. That fire shit, that, that's your officer's job. He'll teach you that when you get out on the street. We're here to teach you discipline and order and what the rules are. Okay, that's not, and you know, when you think about a basic training in the military, it isn't too far off of that. I mean, that's changed over time too, but, it, you know, uh, but you can't, you can't bring on, guys all that fast when you're doing it that way, right? Because you need a lot of senior men and you need a lot of senior officers. That can, I mean, you know, back in the day, and it started to fall apart by the time I came on the job, all candidates got assigned to a captain shift, right? They didn't come on that fast or that furious, right? So that, that was, you got assigned to a captain. So you're a senior officer, right? Uh, that took you through your probationary period. Uh, that, does, that doesn't happen certainly anymore. And it hardly happened even when I came on the job. Or it wasn't, you know, absolute. It was already starting to be thinned out and withered away. You get to uh, 89. You don't spend much time there. You hadn't, I mean, what were you doing prior to you getting into the fire service? Just <laughs> not doing much? I had, you know, I, I had a job in a warehouse. I had a job driving a truck. I, you know, I was, I was trying to get... A, uh, to apprentice as a carpenter, I was trying to get you know into that a little bit, and so uh, you know just being a disappointment to my dad, basically. <laughs> how how old were you when you got on the job? I, I was uh, le technically, legally, officially, I was twenty one years old. Well, the the reason I ask is, you you get to eighty nine, and how long is it before you get like your first real fire? Actually, it wasn't all that very long. Now, that's a slow house, right? Yeah, it wasn't all that that long. It was maybe there, maybe three months or something like that. And, we had and did a, you have a bunch of salty guys over there? Actually, there was. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially in those days, and it's it's still true today, I suppose. You know, guys, those houses are filled with guys spend some time out on the west side or whatever, and then yeah. as they get older, they move themselves up. Uh, so that you know, guys had some experience, but they were old and slow. And uh, <laughs> are we making noise? Oh, no, that's right. That's, I'm sorry. I no, don't I, worry about I thought it. Thought I had the phone all the way down. It's all right. 33 years, we'll, we'll cut you a break. <laughs> yeah, right. We uh, used to make the joke, you get five minutes for every bugle, right? You could be five minutes late <laughs> right. for every bugle. Well, you, you still got some time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, so where was it? So, yeah, you're, so you're at 89. But there were, there were a couple guys there that, that uh, and, you know, the officer was good. He said, okay, this guy, this guy, yes. These guys, no. Yeah. No. Uh, they were good about that. But we had a pretty good single-family home. You know, the houses up in that area are kind of big. Attic fire, finished attic, attic fire. I, I had my ass handed to me. I took a good trimming. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a good experience. What, what was your job at that fire? Where were uh, did, did they, they didn't put you right on the pipe, right? Uh, I was. Oh, really? <laughs> not, not right away, not at first, but it was like, okay, kid, get up here and take your turn, right? Because it was a tough attic fire. It was hard to get up into the attic. I didn't, I didn't do, somebody else made the push and, you know, I didn't put the fire out. But they gave me a chance to try. Well, right? that, was, that was cool that they, you know, they, oh, yeah. they, they did a little bit of work and then, yep. all right. Yeah, give the kid a shot. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And um, so that goes in the books as your first one. And you, 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 
you stay there for how long now? Well, so I was there probably, I, you know, I was assigned there, I'd say a year or more, but I shortly after I got there, I got detailed, long-term detail to Truck 22. Uh, Long, you know, long-term detail? Yeah, it was like, I was every day I was detailed at Truck 22. That kind of shit could go on back then. Where's Truck 22 at? at that's 83's house. That's uh, in Uptown, Wilson and Racing. Okay. Across the street where Truman is right yeah, now. Yeah, across from Truman College. Well, and yeah. Was Truman there at yeah. that time? Oh, yeah. I, so when I came out of the academy, I, I was assigned to that house. Yeah. And some of the old guys there said that they used to just deck gun right across the street. And, like, they, they'd, like, the bums would, like, sleep over there. And they would just deck gun that, that whole area across the street and just clean that area good, up good. over there. <laughs> A lot of stuff went on over there. <laughs> Well, I mean, and really, it was you know when I went there because I eventually got assigned there, so I got detailed there, and then transporter came out. I put in for. So were you, you know, I I'd only known you from working when you were already uh, director of training, but were you a, a truck guy or an engine guy? For so so I was on really truck twenty two. I mean, I spent seven years there, so that um, that's you didn't want to cross the floor from there. Well, you know, I didn't put in for it. I mean, I got enough details to keep satisfied i suppose but yeah. it, it was you know it was a good busy truck with good guys and it was like you don't you don't leave those spots yeah you know especially when you're young i mean i was lucky i got there like i said this whole after the strike everybody's trying to figure shit out there were spots open all over the place that typically wouldn't be open you know that only senior guys could, you know but it, it, it was a mess it was the wild west so i was able to sneak in there and once you got there it was like okay you don't you know. Don't ruffle any feathers. No, and you're not going to get anything better than this by trying to, you know, get an engine. Lots yeah. of luck with that. So, I, I had I had good people there to teach me my job. So, okay, I, I shut up and tried to <laughs> tried to make good use of that. <laughs> so, truck twenty two. I I never knew that you were at, at truck twenty two. Spent seven years there, but seven years in, you know, your career. Where where do you go from there? So from there, I make engineer. And uh, so in, in seven years, you made engineer. Yeah. So 80, was it 87? Yeah, it had to be 87. Um, something like that. I don't know. I, I use round numbers. <laughs> um, so I take the engineer's test. Right. And it was one again, it was part of that having good mentors that said, listen, kid, you know, because young guys on the job. Well, I don't want to be an engineer. I, you know, I still want to work, blah, blah, blah. I said, you take every take every test that comes your way. You take every opportunity that comes your way. You can, one, you can always turn the job down. You don't have to take yeah. it. And two, the one that stuck in my head, at least as I remember it, and I think it was Mike Kozicki, I think it was the uh, engine officer uh, on my shift, that said, look, one of the best motivations for studying for the lieutenant's test for a young guy is to be an engineer, right? If you want to get back in that fire building, you're going to have to make lieutenant. Right. So <laughs> you're going to work harder to do it. If you're the engineer, and he was right, right? Because lieutenant stunts comes around. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna. This is the one. I'm gonna do this thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I and I'll t but I'll also tell you what. I mean, it, it was a, another part of the advice was, um, if you're gonna be an effective officer on this job, you should be an engineer because you're gonna learn something there that you won't learn otherwise, um, and it, and you'll be able to make use of it. You'll know when your engineer has a problem. You'll know when something's not right. And the only way you're gonna really know that is to spend some time as an engineer. That was good advice because so it was true. That advice held up, huh? Oh, it was true. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I could tell. I could tell 
as a, as a lieutenant, even as a new lieutenant, calling the engineer, I could tell when, when he was lying to me, right? When things were just, <laughs> when things were wrong and he's trying to bullshit his way through it, I, yeah. I could tell. And I'd hustle down there and, you know, help him figure out what's going on or whatever. Um, yeah, you can also, uh, you know, a little, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing with the rig. Eh, don't, don't give me that shit, right? <laughs> you know? So it, it really was. But, I mean, it, the very practical value. Was just that you you had a, a that sixth sense of something was not right and you you knew you had to go fix it. And, you, and you think that building that sixth sense on the fire ground started from being an engineer. Well, that it helped, right? Yeah. I knew when he was having a problem. It was the same thing with with being on the truck. Um, I I had very very little roof time because I was down on the pecking order and plenty of guys in front of me. But enough and and really just good good mentors good good guys I've worked with that, again, as an officer, kind of having that sense of it doesn't sound right, it doesn't smell right, it, you know, yeah. it doesn't look right. Um, so, you know, it really does help as an officer. I mean, in a perfect world, you'd kind of do what the military does, where it might not be absolutely required, but your odds of getting promoted are pretty thin if you haven't done these other basic things, right? Right. It would be nice if we could manage that, but we don't have the up and out that the military has, so it's... It's kind of harder to do. But. So, so the movement for, you know, getting to a good house or just a change in, uh, there wasn't that much movement, right? No. It, no. And, there, and, there was a whole lot right after, you know, the first three or four years. But right. then after that, when everybody settled in, you know, a lot of guys with senior, you know, with time. And then, you know, and there's always that attrition. There's that time when it's hard to get anything and there's yeah. times where it opens up. Did, did you... From your time at Truck 22, were you wanting to go anywhere else, or were you happy there? So when I, I, I was happy there, and it, one of the policies at the time, and I don't think it was ever a written policy, it was just, but when you got made lieutenant, you always got shipped out of your district. Um, that's gotten looser and looser over time. Well, now, I mean, it, it was still the practice when, when you were there, you made lieutenant, you went to the bureau or, or did some... Not, that, some that was already gone in my dad's time. That was like an absolute, unless you went down and begged absolution from Quinn, quite literally. You had yeah. to go make an appearance and beg off. Every lieutenant got sent to the Bureau. Um, and what, what do you think of that practice? That, you know what? That's not a bad, right? I mean, you, you learn an aspect of the job that every firefighter should learn, really. And, yeah. and, I mean, uh, those guys go kicking and screaming, but you, you, you find some you know, benefit in there? It, it, well, there's a huge benefit. Yeah. It. You know, the, the, the rub is, is that is the side job. The rub is that, that you're you're off the the twenty four hour shift. That I mean, and that was the and if a guy that made a successful again, I'm going back in my dad's era. A guy that made a successful claim had to do it based on um, you know, like in my dad's case, I got nine kids. Uh, now he went in the bureau. Uh, he didn't beg out, but I mean, the, the guy would make you know, I, I I got this many kids, I got this, you know, I I just can't afford not to work that side job. Yeah. And you might get a pass on it, or you might get a shorter time because it typically was a year. Yeah. No sense in putting you in there for a few months and having to rotate somebody else in. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, and, and maybe it doesn't have to be right when you get promoted, but it should be. I, I, if I could wave the magic wand, the magic wand would make it so that, in order to keep getting promoted, let's just put it that way, so you know we can broaden it out a little bit. You would, your chances of keep 
continuing to get promoted would be thinner and thinner if you didn't do those things, if you didn't spend some time in the bureau, if you didn't get this particular degree or certification or whatever. You should. You think it should be one of those boxes you need to check to. Well, to move you, you should. You should have a a selection of boxes, right? There's not absolute. You know, there might be a couple really important absolute boxes. Thou shalt have to do this one and this one. But then you should have a menu of boxes that you can select from and say, I want to, you know, get the, this level of experience or, or education or whatever expertise and demonstrate that. And that's how you earn your promotion is by demonstrating competence in a broad spectrum of the fire service, not rolling the dice on a hundred question test every 10 years. That makes absolutely no fucking sense. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes. It's, it's, it's lottery. It's a lot. It makes zero sense. No. When you tell anybody in any other profession that this is how we get promoted in the Chicago Fire Department, they don't believe you. They think you're kind of like, you know, spinning it to make a good story. Yeah. And, and when you sit down and really show them, no, no, this is literally how it's done. Once every 10 years, 100 questions makes or breaks you. They just shake their heads and go, how do you guys function? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, that's, the, that's the way it is. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break here. I, I want to check Nick's microphone, and I want to, more importantly, uh, re refill drink, your, yeah. uh, your whiskey there. So <laughs> okay. let's take a quick break, and we'll, we'll be right back. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Story is brought to you by Dunning's Poor House in Chicago's northwest side. Uh, Dunning's Poor House located at 7718 West Addison. You can reach uh, Bobby at info at dunningspoorhouse.com. And if you want to call Bobby to book a private party or just to see how he's doing, give him a call, 773-309-8135. Vince, let me tell you a little something about our guy, Bobby. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're always talking about the last couple of times I, I showed up and we're hanging out there. We're always talking about how great the food is, right? Amazing food. Amazing awesome food. food. So Bobby, interesting fact, his real name is Robert. Um, no, we, I, I took a look and like, not only is, and we always knew that Dunning's Poorhouse was a, was a neighborhood bar, but, and that Bobby was from the neighborhood, but I didn't realize he went to Lane Tech. He actually ended up working at, you know, two pretty well-respected, um, restaurant groups, earned early recognition throughout that and ended up, you know, ended up going through this hospitality field and just after that he opened up Dunning's Poorhouse so I mean this guy didn't just learn how to cook a good cheeseburger one day and open up a bar like this is why he's got such incredible food yeah it's amazing local bar that has amazing food Bobby has a uh, restaurant background he knows what he's doing and we're saying it, it it's your neighborhood bar where they got the jukebox playing sometimes they have live music and if you go to their Facebook page they always put it when they're going to have like these local blues guys come in and he'll have his guitar and just amazing music. Yeah. Just amazing atmosphere. They have a uh, patio out front. You can play bags out there. And like you were saying earlier, with these great events that, that you can host in there, it's it's just such a cool place to hang out. Definitely check it out. Yeah, Dunning's Poor House, um, 7718 West Addison. That's uh, Addison just just uh, west of Harlem Avenue. For all you Northsiders, and if you Southsiders want to actually use indoor plumbing, come up to uh, the Northwest Side. <laughs> come on, Jeff. We're looking forward to hanging out with you again, bud. Come up to Dunning's. Dunning's Poor House, 7718 West Addison.
All right, well, we refreshed the whiskey, and we're back at it with um, Pete Van Dorp, retired uh, chief from Chicago Fire Department. Uh, chief, when we left off, you were um, kind of talking about going from, uh, you are on your way from engineer to lieutenant. Yeah. And uh, so where were you... Where were you an engineer at when you got promoted? So engineer was third district at that time, which would have been north side, northwest side, and O'Hare was part of the third district. Really? So I spent a fair amount of my engineering time because, you know, you got nine engines out there. Uh, <laughs> to, you know, you spend a lot of time as an engineer out at the airport. And that was kind of an interesting, you know, I mean, if you're an engineer and you're not doing fire duty anyway in that sense, right, you might as well get out there and... You know, I spun one of those crash rigs around once, and, you know, <laughs> so I had some good experiences with that, you know. I mean, it was snowy, What you know, one of those days, and I, I mean, I was tapping them as light as I could tap them, and it just started to go, and I just said, you know, looked at the officer, he looked at me, and I went, oh, just hang on, you know, maybe we'll hit something, maybe we won't, so. Uh, I also spun a rig, it's kind of interesting, because it was, was it 89? I don't know, 89 or 79, because I wound up back there as an engineer, it had to be 89. Because he had the American La France. But it wasn't icy, but it was a, a fall day with a lot of leaves on the ground and a lot of rain, leaves on the street, right? And I just hit the, the brakes at an intersection. You know, I mean, those were big, heavy rigs, those American La France's. And I just 360 that thing right through the intersection and kept going. Was, you know, when, when I realized I was alive, you know, and I didn't hit anything, I just kind of looked at the officer and gave him like a nod and a wink, like, yeah, you know, Better no. do it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but my heart <laughs> did, it was did, a big intersection, like Lincoln, one of those, you know, oh, man. Lincoln and Peterson or something like that. I don't know. I, I'm gathering that you went, you didn't spend too much time as an engineer because you were. You, Two years. So in the whole scheme of thing, that that's really nothing, right? No. And then when you were an engineer, were you already studying for the lieutenant's exam? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, you you were you were just that was just a stop on the way, right? You know, it was it it like I said, I had good guidance, right? It made sense. People were you know that I trusted and, and understood, and that's just my dad. You know, my yeah. dad was like, do what you want to do. You know, but, well, I, but, I wanted to get back to your dad because what were you, what was your dad's like feelings, and what was he telling you during the strike? Because your dad was balls deep in the oh, yeah. strike at that time, and it, you know we've had other guests on who came on during the strike and who uh, worked uh, through the strike. You know, walking out, they were going to come, be able to come back. They didn't know if this was, you know, walking out meant that they were losing their jobs. And it wasn't like, hey, we're going to walk out when this is over. We're all coming back. You know, so. in, in high, the, the winners get the right to history. And my dad would tell you this. And any other strikers that were the more mature, sensible guy, right, the kind of the, the leaders of the whole thing will tell you. You know, yeah, we won. So it was easy to, to be right. the guys that wrote the history and, and you know, but the, um and there was there was some of that hatred that was deserved and earned. Um, there, there was from some, the people who didn't walk out. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, the hating the scabs and treating them like shit. I mean, there was yeah. some of that that was legitimate. I mean, let's if you're if you know anything about the labor movement and how these things work, it's one, it's inevitable, and two, some of it's legitimate, right? Yeah. You, you guys that knew better or should have known better or were clearly looking out for their own self-interest and couldn't give a shit about anybody else, those guys deserved to be hated. There yeah. were other guys that were in between a rock and a hard place. What, what were the and guys? It's hard, to, it's hard, you know, to right. work through all those nuances at the time. You know, in hindsight, it's easy to do, but it, yeah. it's not easy at the time. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I want to make sure that people like me who are on the job now don't take that for granted what those guys went through back then because 
I go to the firehouse and the things that I enjoy from the benefits that I enjoy right now are directly a result of the guys who walked out. It's amazing. I mean, it's hard to imagine the differences. Um, so, so my dad was, was a battalion chief when he, when he walked on, he had just gotten made battalion chief, but he had been a captain up until right before the strike. And as a captain, he was working as what we were, you know, a deputy fire marshal or deputy district chief. So he was working two ranks above his pay grade and not getting paid. You know, no, no overtime, no acting out of rank time, not, not, none of that Stipends stuff. Stipends or anything? Not, nothing, right? You just did, and, and running three-man engines, at, at, you know, in the busiest areas of the city even. Um, so, it, and it really was a big, it was mostly about manpower. It was about manpower, and it was about promotions, right? They, they just weren't, you know, they were just bleeding, you know, and you, you can squeeze so hard. My, you know, my dad would always say, even at the time and, and today, he says, it wasn't a strike, it was a revolution. You know, you, you could, if you're a dictator, if you're a despot, you, you can starve people, you can squeeze them, but you can only squeeze them so far. When they get desperate, when they think they're going to die, they're going to revolt. Right. And we thought we were going to die. We thought, you know, in, in well, a political it, it really sense, was three-man engines, especially in that time. You got to look back at what you guys were using to fight fires. Oh, the one. rigs. The, the rigs were, you know, no SCBAs on the rigs. I mean, you know, and part of that, I mean, when the guys got them, they didn't want to wear them. And that's a whole nother set of stories. But, I mean, most rigs didn't even have the damn things. They didn't have one for every guy on the rig. Even after the strike, I mean, you know, we had to kill two guys in a high-rise downtown in, a, in, a, in an elevator shaft be- before even company officers got issued radios, let alone... You know, men, right? I mean, company officers didn't have portable what, radios what year when they was came it? on the job. Uh, it was early 80s. I'm not going to yeah. remember, you know, McShane and uh, I forget the other guy's name. Shame on me. Um, but, you know, you know, it, it was just, you know, and then when we got radios, they were the hand-me-downs from the police department. I mean, that, <laughs> that was just the sort of attitude. And it's, it's a strange thing. And, I, you know, I wasn't there, and I don't know, and that's part of why... We're starting to grab some of this history, but we, we lost a lot of it already, unfortunately. But when you think about it, so, so Quinn, who basically built the modern Chicago Fire Department, as we understand it, he was a very progressive, ahead of his time. Did you ever you know, meet you know, him? No. He, he was gone by the time I yeah. got it. You know. um, but he did all kinds of innovate. Like, you know, I mean, you, you might hear if you're involved in any of this kind of stuff, like there's people trying to reintroduce the high-pressure Engines. Oh, that's a European thing, blah, blah, that's all bullshit, da, da, da. Chicago had a fleet of high-pressure engines in the 60s, in service on the street, right? And the guys hated them. Not the guys that were assigned to them, but everybody else hated them because they'd steal all your fires. These guys would get in there, they could lead out that high-pressure hard line before you could lead out your line, you know, and they were yeah. taking your fires away from you. But So in a lot of ways, helicopters, marine units, all this kind of stuff, uh, uh, the bomb, snorkel. bomb squads, the snorkel, that's another interesting story. Uh that Quinn, you know, was at the uh, vanguard of. He was in the forefront of all this stuff. But he just, it, my opinion, my my take on this, I shouldn't even say my opinion, it's as I understand the history, is that he just was around for too long and he actually literally got senile. And so he's still in position, he's still in power, he's still making decisions, and now he's uh, becomes a despot, you know. Really? Um, it, it, you know, it, it's sort of a change. I mean, when you see what he built, you got to say, this guy had talent. He was forward thinking. He was doing all this. But he also brought them to the brink of the strike, in essence, you know, because the, the, the cutbacks and the lack of manning and all that kind of stuff happened under his watch as well, or, or was the, the pieces were set, you know. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, you know what? I never would have even it's, put I, that together. I, I don't I don't know that there's anybody that can put it together anymore. I mean, I, I'm sure the information is out there, but there's there's a there's a, a doctorate, not just a master's degree. There's a doctorate <laughs> out there somewhere for someone who could really um, authentically reconstruct the history of the Chicago Fire Department, because yeah. unfortunately, so much of it has not been kept. Um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. When I was down at the academy, there was boxes of stuff in the attic that nobody had looked at for 30 years. I mean, there's boxes like Quinn's business cards and really and, and things that, like who, you know, not that this is important that somebody keeps Quinn's business cards, but here's a box of shit that nobody's looked at for 30 it's a box years. Of history. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And so Time th capsules. Th thankfully, the museum guys are, are grabbing what they can grab, right? Because a lot of it is, is grab the artifacts, but you got to have the documents. You've got to have right, the provenance. Yeah. You know, uh, so that to, because somebody's memory, you know, or my relating somebody's memory of Quinn and what happened and all that isn't the same as, as written evidence, right? That, that will really tell the story, the letters, the memos, the, you know, the, the journal entries, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And those, that's another thing that, that they let go because they got all whacked out with HIPAA and they started taping these things shut. And I mean, the basements right. of firehouses used to be full of these journals and then they started disappearing because guys were afraid they're going to get thrown away, and, which they probably would have at some point. But I mean, God help us that the fire department should have collected all those damn things and preserved them somewhere because that is our, our history. Yeah. And if a day to day history, oh, and it's some of the most important history. Historians like from the Civil War and eras like that tell you that, that the personal letters, those sort of handwritten, sort of, you know, not the official document kind of history, right. but the contemporaneous sort of stuff that the worker bees wrote down is the real important well, history. Well, like your journal entries compared to my journal entries uh, as a paramedic, when you get, you guys enter a lot more stuff that is of the day-to-day -day right. operations. Mine are very much just run to run to run. Yeah. You, you know, you stru structure fire, I had this, this, and this. Yeah. And so your history is captured so much more in your those journal entries that mine just said, yeah, okay, you did 30 runs today, yeah. <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. But you guys have an actual, we did this, this happened to this guy. It's a little yeah. more detailed and, and based on your run. Historically, it's even better because there was no Niffer's report. There was no... You had to that. be more detailed. So you really yeah. had, you know, if you wanted it to be... Now, it, it was kind of funny because um, it, it would depend where you went, right? And, and how busy the guys were. I mean, when you get into the 60s and 70s when it was crazy, I mean, literally, they're doing two, three fires a day in a lot of parts of the city. Yeah. Not just one or two, I mean, a lot of parts of the city. Every single day. Um you know, truck 22 responded to a fire, blah, 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 GTW, end of story, right? General truck work, and, you know, because you're going to write this 15 times that right. day or so, or you think you might, right? Yeah. Um, so and there, there was a standing joke. I don't know if the story was true because I never could find the journal. But that allegedly some acting officer in Engine 83, you know, rather than write the, the story of the day, he just wrote... They would say in crayon, or it looked like crayon. Right? <laughs> Everything a okay in big letters across the whole page, right? You know, I said that's they're not paying me to do this. That's all they're going to get. Everything's a okay. You know, if you're putting me in charge, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> hey, you promoted me. Yeah, well, they didn't promote. You know, that was the thing, right? This is the guy that's acting up. This is pre-strike, oh. right? Oh, this is, yeah. Right. So these are these guys that that was the world that they were living in. They have, you didn't act up once in a while because somebody got sick or somebody laid up at, at the last second. You acted up every single day. You came to work and did not get paid for it. 
and had no prospect. There was no, no test being announced. And, you know, I mean, you build this up over a decade. Right. Promotions were the other part of the strike, right? Oh, a big part. Sure. Yeah. Because nobody was getting promoted. And you're talking about your days at Truck 22. And when I was there, uh, especially when I first got out, I wanted to ask these old timers, like all kinds of stuff. And they used to tell me, and now that you're retired, maybe you can speak to this uh, candidly. There was a tradition that if you went to a good fire, you came back and you had a beer. Is that? I've the, heard that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here, so so here's the truth. Okay, is that that up until relatively recently, and let's say you know the 21st century. And not just in the city of Chicago, this is anywhere. Drinking in the firehouse was relatively common. And this comes from, uh, you know, one, when, and, you know, times were different in the 19th, that's, never mind the 20th century, the 19th century, and early 20th century, when even in paid departments, you're living seven days, I mean, you, right, there, there was, was no shift. It was a different schedule, you, right? You just lived there kind yeah. of thing, right? So, and then, or one-on-one -on -one off. And then you come back to the volunteer. I mean, there's volunteer fire departments in this country to this day that have bars in their firehouses. They're fire halls, like VFW halls. And that, that doesn't mean they show up and drink all day, but that's part and parcel of what that organization is, right? Just like a VFW hall is. And so, uh, so there, there's been this intermingling of this stuff. And, and when you allow that, you're inevitably going to have breaches, okay, of the etiquette. It, it's just going to happen, right? So that, okay, have a couple of drinks after the, the fire becomes have a couple of drinks after the run, and that becomes have a couple of drinks during the day, and then that becomes, right? And it, it all comes down to how much is tolerated when, where, and how. If you, if you, and then the other piece of this equation is that if you, you know, we are a part of society. We're not different. We're not specially selected. We're not, you know, we don't have... Contrary to popular myth, right? There's no special uh, selection process that uh, higher standards, so to speak. So if 10% of the general population is alcoholic, 10% of the fire department is alcoholic, which means they, they're drinking. They, they can't go 24 hours without drink, generally speaking. Yeah. So, I mean, it, inevitably... Was there a last chance when, when you started? So last chance came about... Last chance came about when the drug testing came about. So exactly when that was, again, that's going to be mid to late 80s. Okay. Maybe later than that. And but my recollection is For late, people who don't, aren't familiar with Last Chance, uh, I, I don't know if it, there's a, do you guys have Last Chance where if you get caught, uh, like if you piss hot or you get, you go through the treatment, you have that Last Chance, and then the next violation, it's, you're done? Do you have that, Nick? So... Uh, we Nick, just kind of you pioneered. <laughs> You're not on last chance, are you? <laughs> What's that? You're not on last chance, are you? No, no. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> um, so we just kind of pioneered everything in our bargaining agreement with uh, marijuana. So. Oh, okay. So our union spent about thirty grand writing language, um, changing. You know, we're pretty a uh, progressive department, and so. Um, changing the policies regarding that so it doesn't state that it's okay to do but what it states is instead of taking a piss test you take a blood test and you have an acceptable limit um so it's it also gives you the chance to you know it's more accurate to proving that you're impaired so all right vince you use marijuana 
and this is an example, <laughs> use marijuana like two weeks ago, but you're going to piss right now and you're a-okay, but it shows up in your piss test, right? I, but you go, I'm a-okay. I, I haven't used it. I was around it. I, you know, and then I'm assuming you, you'd get pinched, right? Right. So with us, it's a blood test. So acceptable, uh, it, with the acceptable limits of the nanograms of THC, um, uh, it should be out of your, like, it should be under that in about eight hours. So if it's over, then you've definitely done it recently. This is, uh, also, this is not hard. I mean, we get also, our, also, we get, yeah, we get yeah. our rundies in a bunch about this stuff, but it's no different than, than alcohol. Yeah. It, they know and, how long it takes you to process. And so you just got to rewrite the language to allow for the different amounts. Yeah. Because, so, see, Chicago had a zero tolerance policy for drugs except marijuana, right? Because you can't have secondhand smoke. So they, they had a small amount that would be acceptable. And I'm sure that number has changed now that it's legal. And, you, you know, just come on, get over yourself, Scott. Right. You know what I mean? But we also we have to have policy. our department doctor also has to, um, like, prove your impairment as well if you go do a blood test. So, but with that, um, the fire chief allowed it. Um, but he had a stipulation, like say you get written up for, or a write-up or a suspension or whatever that goes in your file for X amount of years. And then if you're all good, it gets washed away with, um, weed, it's three strikes are out. So after the, you know, and then you have to go it, I think the first, uh, offense is, you know, you, you get suspended, I think five days. And then the second offense you get a bigger suspension plus you have to go to uh, rehab uh, facility and you get piss tested for a whole year and if you get if you piss hot then you're out so and the third time so basically it was like do not show up to work messed up <laughs> like so it's legal now so don't show up to work messed up yeah so it, and I know I think everyone's been pretty responsible and was there much weed back in your day Nah, it was just drinking mostly. There was more. I mean, it was just a generational thing, right? Yeah. And and, and not only that, but uh, there might have been more than I than I because I I wasn't that exposed to it as a kid. I, it never was, you know, outside of the yeah. Try this a few times, kind of thing. It was not part of my my you know peer groups thing, so I didn't see it. You know, I wasn't looking for it the same, perhaps. Um, but, you know, I, as I progressed in my career, right, I got less and less tolerant of all this stuff because and it wasn't about you shouldn't do this, this is wrong. It was about look at the schedule you have, look at the privileges you have, look at the opportunities you have, uh, look at the, um, the medical, you know, the, the layup procedure, the time, you know. I mean, if you're impaired, call in sick. I mean, you you have so many options that most other employees don't have. Just just call in sick. Don't give me excuse. Don't don't make, you know. Just I'm not coming to work today. I'm sick. And you do whatever it is your particular department requires you to do. Don't put yourself in a trick bag like that. Yeah. You're you're harming yourself. You're harming your family. It's a, you know to me it's not about the legal or or how much you had and all that. You're you're putting your 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 job, your pension, your family. You're putting all that in jeopardy over. When we're giving you so many opportunities to get out, you know, to, to yeah. save yourself from it. And if you fail to save yourself from it, that's where the whole last chance thing comes in. All right, then you have a problem. If you can't save yourself from it, it wasn't an error, it's a problem. And and here we're offering you something to, to help you do it. Uh, the only, 
trick bag with last chances is that the evidence is pretty clear that people need more than one chance is that the recidivism rate for any of this stuff is is, is high enough that one chance is you know, really like kicking a can down the road then on the other hand the, the other side of that coin, where, you know, you, but where do you stop well i know it's yeah. a, you know um is that their last chance isn't really last chance yeah so if you if you've got the right doctor and you've got the like right lawyer and you are making a genuine effort, you can work yourself into more than a, a last chance. But really, all that is irrelevant. The import what what we really should focus on, particularly as our unions, um, as our representatives, is how do we have the healthiest fire department we can have? And anybody that's abusing alcohol or drugs or, or you know is is not a healthy person is not going to have a health and, and not just physically mentally healthy right their family life's all messed up right. So we should be thinking about how do we best support our membership uh, to to get through all this, like like any other medical condition or health problem or mental illness, right? And, and so let's take that approach rather than worrying about you know my constitutional rights or that that sort of stuff. What's the right? What's the best? What's in the best interest of this member and his family? And how do we create a culture within our department that says you you need to be healthy and well? And what does that mean? Well, you know, uh, maybe you can. Maybe this has actually come through during your time down at training. I've heard the horror stories of guys at their graduation getting so hammered that they got fired at graduation. Did you ever hear those stories? Didn't happen on my watch, but <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure it happened. I mean, you know, so it's a it's a funny thing to to me. So that the the city, um, you know, like as long as you don't have any recent felonies, right? You could probably, but residency. And drugs, right? I like to, you know, or working while laid up. Yeah, working while laid up. Right? There's like three things that you can get fired right. for. Everything else is negotiable, but those and and yeah. they're kind of an odd three when you it think about it. It is an odd three, yeah. You know, um, but what you know that that's just the, you know they they've drawn their bright lines where they want to draw their bright lines, and they're entitled to do that. I'm not saying it's right, but they're entitled to do that as the employer, and that's and and if you. Um, what we owe our membership, what we owe our, our personnel is to say, is to make it clear to them, especially for company officers, make clear to your personnel. These are where the bright lines are. I'm not going to have the discussion with you about should they be here or not, but this is where they are. And if you cross this bright line, you're going to, you're going to lose your job. So you got to know what the rules are. Don't cross that line. Yeah. Don't cross that line. You know? Um, so where did you spend most of your time as a lieutenant? Lieutenant, I was assigned to the 4th District Relief. Yes, I never 4th had District. The old, well, is it still the 4th District? I don't know, Westside. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 13, 14, yeah. well, what was it, 13? And I never had a permanent assignment as a lieutenant because my route was so good. Really? That, so here's, here's the deal. You had a good rotation, huh? Oh, so here's the deal. My dad was deputy district chief out there, not when I was assigned there, but at Wait, one, before you get too did you go, did you and your dad ever go to a fire together? Couple times As when when I was at Truck Twenty Two, he was chief of what at the time was the Thirteenth Battalion, which I don't know. Then it became the Fifth, Fifty Five South Halston Diversity, whatever yeah. that is now as a battalion. That was his spot. He was the he was the truck captain there. He was lieutenant on Engine Twenty Two, truck captain in Truck Forty Four, and wound up in that battalion as well. So we bumped into each other not too often, but every once. But you did get to go to a fire with your dad. I went to two or three fires with my dad. That's awesome. That yeah, is cool. We've had uh, a couple. Guys that have uh, come on, Mike Manchester, got to go to yeah. a, a fire with his dad. Uh, uh, we had the Nielsens on here together. Yeah. They they, they kind of made it happen. Yeah, <laughs> figured out a way to do it. Yeah, Mark they, was they in a position yeah, to, they, to they, do it. Yeah, yeah, they figured it out. So 
I can only imagine that how cool that must be to yeah. be able to go to a fire with your dad. It was fun. Um, so you you're give us the route that you uh, took on the, so, on the so here, district. So here's the story. So like like I, you know, I've, I already got my pension. You know, I I can be more honest than most. <laughs> so my dad's not at the time I was out there, but he had been a deputy district chief in the in the fourth district, right? So the manpower guy there was, um, boy, I'm going to forget his real name because everybody called him Spanky. <laughs> And it's a shame. I That's mean, right. People will know who that, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they'll know. But I, but I wanted to do him the service, calling him by his okay right name because if he, it comes to you, yeah. well, you bring it up. So, uh, but he didn't get treated real good. Right, no. people didn't like him so much. But my dad always treated him with respect when he was there, and that served me well because when I wound up being there, Spanky was still the manpower guy. So I spent most of my rotation was 13th and 14th battalion. In fact, he would actually apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, Pete. I got to send you out to the 16th, uh, blah, 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 you know, whatever. Uh, okay, you know, that's fine. Um, but that, you know, and that, that, it's one of those important lessons, right? Treat everybody with respect, you know, because yeah. you never, you never know how that's karma is going to work. Yeah, you karma. never know who's going to wind up in a position right. to you know. make you break you. So yeah, my dad always treated him well, and, and so he treated me well. So I, I really had again, it was like being at Truck 22. I had such a good rotation. It's like, you know, off a really good spot. And it wasn't like I didn't put in for anything. I put in for some of the spots in those battalions and that, but I yeah. never got anything. And I wasn't going to just go to get a spot because, shit, this was great. Were you all over the place, truck, engine? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And that's where I got my engine experience, you know, because I'm coming off a truck. You know, sometime as an engineer, you got some engine experience in a sense. But, um, yeah, you know, 117, 96 uh, 95, those, those places went to some fires. So you got some experience and, you know, you'll learn from the guys on the rig. You know, this is, this is how this goes. You ever, uh, go to fires with Kevin Casey? Oh yeah. Cause, uh, yeah. we had we him on together in, a lot. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin, so amazing. You man. can, you can imagine the stories he told. And I wish that some of them were probably true. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish that I could have recorded the stories that he told off the air. Oh yeah. You know, because, <laughs> Which most of them aren't fit for uh, yeah. listening, but it's an amazing uh, snapshot into, like, I mean, I'd go as far as to say the heyday of Chicago Fire Department when uh, firemen were allowed to be firemen and it was, it was all about the guys and, you know, it was really uh, about the work and the men. Yeah. And um, you bounce around from, like, Busy house to busy house in the fourth district, which for those who don't know is is basically uh, Chicago's west side, and outside of like Inglewood, uh, the west side and Inglewood, you know, are those, head to head is yeah. the, the the two busiest, busiest yeah, yeah two busiest areas in in the city. Any like really memorable fires or any really memorable incidents that you had from your time as a lieutenant out there? I, I told you, don't ask me about fire. Oh, well, we got I just, it. We got it, man. You know, like if you had if you had Kevin here and he started talking about a fire, I might remember. Right? <laughs> um, you know, but um, so, so what I what I will tell you, and I don't know what stories Kevin told, but he worked with Tommy O'Donnell. Was out there? You yeah. Talk about Tommy O'Donnell. Everybody loved. He said he was an amazing guy. And and I love Tommy O'Donnell. I don't want to be misunderstood here, okay? Uh, but I had some issues with Tommy. Right? Yeah. Like, like I'm up in an attic, and, and I'm, the fire ain't out yet, you know? And we're trying to work this thing out. And you're a, this is when you're a lieutenant? I, 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 yeah, I'm a lieutenant. And all of a sudden, we lose our water. And I can't get a hold of the engineer, and I go running out, and I'm 
about to tear him a new asshole. And, you know, what What the fuck is going on here? And he points to the battalion chief. He says, he told me to shut down and go home. <laughs> and Tommy would do that. Are you second engine? We don't need you here. Shut down and go home, right? And and people were in such awe of time that, that they would just do what he, you know, told them to do without, like, calling your officer, <laughs> calling your officer and saying, hey, you're about to lose your water. Now, you know, it's a it's a true story. It's an eyeball story. Tommy, <laughs> you know, didn't deliberately try to hurt anybody or anything like that. But he could be so brash and brazen and confident, and which were the wonderful qualities that he possessed. But he could be so good at that, that situations like that I experienced. Like nobody, nobody second-guessed them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, yes, sir. And, you know, off you went. And I had a couple of experiences. That was the more dramatic one. But I had a couple of experiences similar to that with time. And I was like, eh, you know. So explain to people who are listening who aren't familiar with Chicago What's your role as an officer when you go to a fire? Like, wh- where are you in relationship to the rest of the guys and your position? So you're assigned to a company, and that's that's your job, man. And you're not, uh, you know, this whole taking command of the fire and standing outside and waiting for the battalion chief. Even today, that just doesn't happen. And it, it could, largely because any big city, that doesn't really happen because the battalion chief's not 10 or 15 minutes away. He's right on your butt. Um you know, so, so your job is to be at the pointy end of that spear. You know, if, if you're talking about um, being on an engine, you, you're usually the guy right behind the nozzle man or damn close to it. You know, the, the way I was taught and then I hope I taught subsequent to that is that as an officer on a company, you need to be wearing out a pair of boots. How's everything on the nozzle? Fine. How's everything back here? Fine. How's everything on the nozzle? Fine. You need to be back and forth, keeping in touch with everything that's going on. It's even harder to do as a truck officer, right? Because you got more guys and they're spread out a little more. And back then, you were the only one with a radio? Maybe you and so, the engineer? For, yeah, for the most part, right? The officers and the engineer had a, had a radio. And so the guys didn't have a radio. So your direct communication with the guy on the pipe had to Was be face-to-face. knocking him on the head and <laughs> pointing in one direction. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there's, there's some advantage to that. Yeah. Right, and I'm I'm not a I'm not going to tell you we don't need radios. Everybody should have a radio, uh, but there were some advantages to that discipline of having to know where everybody was at. You didn't, you know, um, you know it, it, it's okay that everybody has a radio. It's perfectly okay. Yeah, well, because there there are times where you may have to, um, you know, I, I I see officers going in and has their lead now. Now they can be like, I need you to go here. They're off running to get the next thing done. Yeah. So, so typically, I mean, you know, it would depend what part of the city you worked in. That was one of the beauty, beautiest things of working on the west side is that as the officer, I, I knew that fundamentally they knew what to do. And I didn't have to say, take that line and bring it over here to do this thing. They were going to get that done. So I could jump out ahead of them and try to get that three six, try to get a, a sense of what was going on, gather some information and, and be confident that the fundamentals were being taken care of. You meet up head to head. You confirm, yeah, this is what we want to do, and then off you go. Right. Um, other places where where the guys don't have that same experience, they're not going to have that same confidence. They're not going to be able to make those decisions. Um, and then, as an officer, you have to spend a whole lot more time. First off, in the firehouse, saying, okay, when we get something, this is how it's going to get played out. This is what I want you to do. You're going to go here. You're going to go there. And it's not belittling. And I mean, it's just. The natural thing. I mean, that's your job. That's what you're there for as an officer. It's what I'm paying you for, if you're my officers, is to make those assessments about the quality of your company, what they can and cannot do, and then make the adjustments in terms of the game plan to accommodate that, you know, and hopefully train them up in the meantime. But 
That's why you have officers. That's your function. Uh, question regarding that. All right, so you're a relief officer. I'm uh, in the process of, uh, I just took the lieutenant's test. Um, hopefully get promoted here soon. Yeah. Um, but you go to a different firehouse. You know, you said you got a rotation, That's right? why you want to work on the west side, because they know what the fuck they're doing. Right. <laughs> so I'm assuming... If you're, working, if you're working in the third district or someplace, that now you've got a long day. I'm assuming every firehouse is different. You yeah. know, they... It's same, same, but different, basically, you know. So, um, but as a newer officer, were you going in there getting the feel for those guys? And so their capabilities is, and their confidence and everything? You know, this is all in hindsight. Because what I did, right, remember, I'm this 20-something kid, right? I stepped on my dick left, right, and center. That's what I did. In hindsight, right, what I would advise you to do, right, is something a little different. You okay. Know? So don't. I don't want to be misunderstood. I stumbled through this thing as best as I could. And people like Kevin Casey, those career firefighters, and he got promoted eventually, right? No, never did? No. I thought he did at the very end. Anyway, I mean, those, and I would call them, and I wish we actually had the rank, those master firefighters, uh, those are your NCOs, right? And those are the guys that run the job for you. And so you identify who's the NCO and does he know what he's talking about? Whether you got to, you know, the rank doesn't matter. Call him bar boss, call him whatever you want. Who's the NCO? Right. And, and that's, you know, your, your, and your first discussion should we be with the battalion chief, you know, and what you want to say is, okay, who are, who are the clowns and, and who can I trust? But you don't say that. You say, chief, what can I do to make your, you know, how can I help you out? What do you need from me? And if you approach him right, and if he's got any sense whatsoever, he'll start to confess. Okay, when you're over here, everything will be fine. When you're over here, you're going to have some problems. And, you know, so you, you want to get that from the battalion chief. That's the guy that can give you the scoop on all that. Um, and you should know who the senior guys are on your job, who are the master firefighters. It doesn't really have to be senior guy, right? I mean, it, it's right. the guy that's got his shit together. And at every firehouse in your fire department, you know who those, who those guys are, and you just have a conversation with them and say, "Okay, what can I do to make your day go well? How do how do I you know how do I make this work for you?" And they'll take advantage of that and they'll help you out. Okay, you know, generally. What, what uh, it, was it during your career where they uh, uh, Chicago Fire Department transitioned to bunker gear? Yeah, like when I was a battalion chief, 2006 or yeah. something like that. When you tell people outside of Chicago, that's, you know, I, I, I teach a lot. I All over the country, I lecture, really. And uh, depending on how the conversation and what we're talking about, I'll, I'll ask them, do you, you know, give me a guess. When did Chicago transition to bunker gear? And, you know, they're all in the, the 19-somethings, yeah. of course. And I'm, no, 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 2006. Well, if you, uh, one of the... Um Greatest videos I've seen regarding the fire service was video from the Paxton fire, mm -hmm. um, uh, Paxton hotel fire, and you see the guys differences. In, yeah, guys in bunker gear. Yeah, yeah. And so. when I first saw it, I was like, "What? I don't understand what's going on. Are so, these guys mutual aid? Like, no, what's going so, on?" So this is Chicago would do this a lot during my career, and they're probably still doing it. Right? They test things. Oh, yeah. we're, we're testing it. We're testing. And they were testing out with the squad, right? They tested right? it for 20 years, right? So they every once in a while, they'd issue a bunch of this stuff to the squad. And, and then, you know, we're testing it. We'll get the reports back. And, it, you know, it's just a bureaucratic because yeah. they didn't want to jump on it. You know, And they weren't the only fire department. A lot of fire departments dragged their feet. But Chicago dragged their feet longer than most people did. Um, Do you remember but, people talking about that fire? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew. So I didn't know him really well at the time, but Ray Hoff was the first in truck officer, truck 10 there. And I worked for Ray subsequently. He was the chief of the 4th Battalion when I was Captain Engine 23. Um, so I got to talk to him a lot about a lot of things in Paxson Hotel. Was, the, the, um, he, t- he actually talked to you about that fire? Yeah. Well, like, give us some... some so... You know, I don't. I don't want to speak for Ray, and he's not here to speak for himself anymore, and, and everybody else. But, but it's a good, you they, know, for other people to they, hear. They did what they had to do. That the for me, the lesson, and I wouldn't say. Even after that, in the aftermath of that fire, the lesson didn't come out. Um, I don't. I don't think because of just how everything went down. Uh, but it took a long time for the first line to get stretched. And you and you can you can see why right when you see that video. Yeah. I mean, everywhere you look, there's somebody else at a window. Right. Um, but Ray, I think Ray would tell you, and any, anybody that was there early on would tell you, we sh- we could have gotten the line earlier. We should have gotten the line earlier because it wasn't really that much fire. Now, I'm not here to say that that would have changed the outcome because that thing was so far along by the time they got there. But the if you want a lesson from the the Paxson Hotel fire and fires like that are. For, for me, the lesson would be no matter how dramatic the life safety issue is, we're bringing a lot of resources, and one of those, you need to address that problem, and the problem is the fire. The problem isn't the person at the window. That's the consequence of the problem. The problem is the fire. Get a line on that fire. And don't let that slip away from you. And the Paxson Hotel Fire is a classic example of how that can slip away from you even when you're doing the right thing, you know what I'm saying? Nobody there screwed up. Nobody, nobody was, it wasn't like bad decisions were being made. It just slipped away because it was like, well, somebody's got that. Somebody's got that. You just assume that somebody's got and, that. And uh, Ray was a captain at the time, right? He was captain of truck, right? So right. He's, he's got his job yeah. to do. And, right? and is, so is people to, can understand you know, the, the concept, the, put it in context. At the Paxson Hotel fire, it was one of the, like, it was an SRO? Or I'm somewhere not, in between? I'm not sure if it was, you know, legitimately an SRO, because SROs are structurally different. But it was, yeah, it was, a, let's call it what it was. It yeah. was a flop house. It was, yeah. you know, the and lowest of the, the lowest. windows had, all the windows had. A lot of them had screens on them. The, like, the, the gates and the metal, yeah. like, uh, sure. safety bars and stuff like that. So you had people in there, and you couldn't, you physically couldn't get to every person that was hanging out of this, these windows. No, absolutely not. And, and the way the building was configured, you know, every time you looked at a different part of the building, you had a different set of people hanging out of windows. Yeah. It wasn't like just at the front of the building. It was everywhere. Yeah. Well, one of the we one of our very first guests on our podcast was Jim Stedman. Mm-hmm. And he had... Some of what he says is true, too. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I hope not. But he did, uh, and I can't remember if he actually said this on the air or if this was one of those after the microphones turned off that Ray would say in certain lectures that that he told his men to, I want you to put a ladder here, I want you to put a ladder here, I want you to put a ladder here. Do not make the decision to move that ladder until I tell you. He's like, I don't want you guys moving that ladder till I tell you. And the reason that he gives that he was very adamant about he didn't want these guys to move is because there were so many people in the window. He didn't want his guys to burden the fact that moving that ladder to save somebody else meant that somebody else wasn't going to get saved. He wanted them just to follow Ta- his orders. Ray, was, Ray was, it was an extraordinarily thoughtful guy that you wouldn't expect 
when you first met him, sort of thing. But he was an extraordinarily thoughtful and insightful guy. And yes, he is the kind of guy that would say, I- "I'm going to take that burden from you." That's what he's doing. He's taking the burden from you. Yes. You don't. You don't have to choose which person to save. I'm going to choose that for you, so that you don't have to suffer the consequence. You know, uh, he's going to take on that responsibility. And and that was the kind of man that he was. And he and he didn't just do that in the dramatic situations like the Paxson Hotel fire. Ray did that sort of thing throughout his life in all all kinds of respects, where he understood the magnitude of the responsibility that he had as an officer in a very, very real sense and would uh, give his guys the benefit of taking that burden, whatever the burden was, off of them. He said, that's my job is to take responsibility. Not to be in charge. My job is to be responsible. Yeah. And so Ray would be the designated. He'd make himself the designated adult. Say, okay, I've got that responsibility. I just need you to execute, and I'll take the burden off of you. And the rationalization there is, and, and he's, he's correct, I think, in most cases, is that you will execute, I need you on task, right? And you'll execute that task more effectively if you're not burdened with the decision, uh, those yeah. other things, right? Yeah. The, the, the gray areas. I'll, I'll do the gray areas. You execute for me. Yeah. Um, and then I'll get more out of you that way. Well, I just think it's an amazing example of leadership that, I mean, this is a horrific thing that's unfolding yeah. in front of him, and he's the first one there. To have that that foresight that you're going to take this burden from these guys is see and that would that would be my like an example of throwing books at a fire. <laughs> I'm just, seriously because Ray, I I won't again I because he's not here. You know, he passed away several years ago. Um, but when Ray was teaching, he taught for the Fire Service Institute and he taught the officer development program and, and stuff. And he would tell a lot of personal stories about his marriage and his life and how he grew as a man and a father and a husband and all that kind of stuff. And, and the things that he learned, and he learned them not just through books, but through books. Ray was a reader and, and Ray would encourage you to be a reader. Right. So this is this is a guy throwing books at the problem, if you will. Right. Is that. You, you need to be a lifelong learner, uh, certainly on this job. Um, it's a good idea in life in general, but Ray was the embodiment of that. Whether, whether it was through reading or going to class or whatever, Ray was a lifelong learner. And so that you know, ties me back to that story about, yes, you can put out fires by throwing <laughs> books at them, right? If you read the right books and you know what to do with yeah. them. And I, I, working for Ray was one of the most important things that ever happened to me. Um, he was my battalion chief when I became captain. At engine 23, engine 23. Now, now I'm on an engine, right? So now I really got to dial in my engine shit. Uh, don't ask me how long I was there. Several years. Not West Side busy, but respectable busy, right? Pilsen, engine 23 is in Pilsen, yep. and respectable busy. Uh, but you're working for Ray Hoff, who's been around the block more than three or four times, and has very high expectations. We'll give you all the support you need, but you better know what what you're doing. And uh, Ray was a great, great man to work for. Yeah, what one of the big influences is in your career? And and I didn't realize it at the time. That's one of the the strangest things, right? There's all these lessons that come back, yeah. you know, after the event. Um, and yeah, at the time, because Ray didn't make a okay. Here's the lesson, you know. He didn't, he didn't make, and there was no pomp or anything in in Ray at all. It was just quiet talking, coaching, follow up discussions, and uh, yeah. So years and years later, I have these. You know, these things pop in my head of things that Ray said or did, or you know, could 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 on the radio, you know, could could uh, yeah, uh, bring me bring me an adult size line to. to <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, just real calm. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you put that down? Go get an adult-sized line and let's let's put this fire out. <laughs> Did you get a chance to use that when you were battalion chief? Oh, I would, of course. I'd oh, good steal left, right, and center. Who wouldn't? <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta work for several Hoffs then. Yeah. Um, how well, we- several is two, <laughs> but they constitute several. Yeah. How, how was that working for uh, Bob? Working for Bob. So here's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I didn't work for Bob in the sense that I worked for Ray. I yeah. mean, Bob was the guy that made me director of training. So he's the fire commissioner. So, yes, I worked for him. But not in the day-to-day, that intimate sense that you have, right. you know, with, with your battalion chief when you're a captain. But before you guys became big bosses, did you guys run into each other? Uh, you know, it, it always seemed to me, and this might not be literally true, but it, it always seemed to me we were on different shifts. So we, we would relieve each other a lot. We okay. would have that kind of encounter. But actually working on the scene together, I can't, yeah. off the top of my head, I can't think of a fire that, that we worked at together uh, outside of some, you know, 1611 thing that, you know, we might have been at. But. Uh, but uh, as as fire, you know, so I'm director of training, he's fire commissioner. Um, what Bob was really good at, uh, in my mind, was setting expectations. You know, he didn't micromanage you at all. Bob, Bob was pretty clear about, um, this is a problem. You realize this is a problem. Yes, sir. Um, I need you to solve this problem. Yes, sir. You're going to solve this problem. Yes, sir. <laughs> and it wasn't like, you know, pointing the finger at you. He was giving you opportunity to say, no, I'm out of my, I'm out of my league here, boss. Uh, I need some help, you know, but he wasn't, he wasn't going to insist, you know, he was going to give you that opportunity. And if you said you could handle it, he'd let you handle it. And, and if you expressed a desire for assistance, he'd give you the assistance. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that. That's, that's an important lesson because that's hard to do, right? We all micro, we all say we don't, but we all micromanage. What, what year did you go down the training? Uh, 2000, when did I retire? 13, right? No, no. No, you had to be down there before that because you were down there uh, in 2010. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I yeah, retired yeah. in 2013, so it was 10. It was okay. 2000. It was like August 2000. Well, I, I want to uh, tell my story with you. I was in the academy, and for I, and you can tell if you if – you, I, I doubt you're going to remember this, but if you do, maybe you can tell us the reasoning that you did this. We got, we were in down at FAS, and then just out of the blue, we were told we're running down to the Quinn. Nobody said anything. We get down there, and you're there, and um, you had a mustache at the time. <laughs> you're, had, no, you had your department issue mustache, ten or fifteen pounds, yeah. <laughs> and you brought us into the Hall of Badges. And you brought us in and you were like, take a look at these badges, you know, and you were like, we're making a point. And I don't know if we, we fucked up or did something at the Academy or this is just one of the things that you wanted to, to, uh, everybody to get out of being down at training, but you were really, you know, you had, a, it was a very solemn moment and you had us look at those badges. And for people who don't know the, the hall of badges is a, a case of badges for all the fallen firefighters and paramedics and you kind of just made us take a minute and stare at those badges and i'll never forget that day yeah do you did do you remember that like so, what what so those i don't i don't remember the particular incident because i did it for the, the firefighter class as well so those sorts of things were not instigated or not initiated by me they'd been initiated by your instructors or the instructors you know um 
supervisors, right? And they would say, uh, the, cla the class needs a wake-up call. The class needs, you know. Is that it, what that was? Yeah. And, and so those, those would be things that they would say, we, you know, we, we need you to sort of put the fear of God in them or, you know, whatever it is. And then it was kind of my job to do the, the drama. Uh, well, thing. you did a fucking yeah. bang-up job. Okay. <laughs> no, good. I mean, it, this is 11 years now for me, and yeah. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Well, that's, that's kind of the idea is that. You know, and, and we would have discussions about that kind of, you know, the, the instructor cadre, we're having discussions about that kind of stuff. But they knew, um, they knew when to do it. That, that was the beautiful thing. I got so damn lucky when I went down there because it's yeah. not always that way. I had an incredibly talented, motivated, dedicated cadre of instructors. Uh, Curtis Hutchins, Joe Rimkus, you know, that, that bunch. Uh, yeah, Danny Swift, the, the, whole, the whole bunch were were really, really good. Made yeah. your job easy? <laughs> you know, beyond easy. It was embarrassingly easy. Yeah. It, it really was, because the day-to-day -day stuff, Curtis and Joe in particular, and I'm not taking anything away from anybody else that was down there, but those were the guys I leaned on to make shit happen on a day-to-day -day basis. Curtis on the EMS side, Joe on the fire side. And uh, it was just like a morning meeting, everything okay? Yes, okay, let's go. Yeah, um, I, I worked for uh, Curtis as an instructor down there, and... Great boss. Oh, yeah. Great boss. Yeah. I was like, man, this is a great job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, he, he's a really good guy. And it's, uh, Joe is the same. Curtis had the tougher job in the sense of with the EMS side of it. You know, there's so many more rules and the medical oversight and all that kind of stuff. And, and he was dialed in. You know, you could not, there was nobody that could pull either from below or above. Nobody <laughs> had anything on him. He was dialed in. He knew all the rules. He knew all the regs. He knew exactly what, you know, what was what. And you know, I didn't know for the longest time that Curtis got hurt uh, on the expressway. He, a, a car hit him, right? Yeah, yeah, he got pretty messed up. Yeah, I, I, it was like just recently that I found that out. I was like, man, you know, but I, I guess he got he got really banged up. Uh, a, a car on the expressway, they were on a run, and uh, the car just came and, and smashed into him, right? right? Yeah, and that's, how, I mean, so that's how the guy starts at the academy, right? Trying to, you know, yeah. but doesn't become a freeloader. Becomes a master of that part of the craft yeah. as well. Uh, credit to him because you know so many of those guys in those situations, you know, might might give it to good old college try, but they end up becoming <laughs> freeloaders. That was not Curtis. He, he was a, a master at what he did there for me. Yeah. Um, what I know there was during your career, and I think you may have been a battalion chief at the time, but there were some big fires that. Uh, for the city of Chicago that, that you were part of, right? It wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're not placing blame here. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, I don't think so. I don't. And that's part of why I say don't ask me about yeah. fire stores because most of the big, you know, the ones that made the news, I wasn't there. Yeah. Well, and the only reason I ask is because you really, um, especially after your career, you really took an interest, or not an interest, but you really went into the education of high-rise fires. Yeah, so, well, it's... High rise for a while and then spread out into other stuff. So let me try to think how this works. Because we, you know, in the, so the city, I, we had a, a significant fire that. You had a couple of them, right? So the, the big one was the uh, Cook County building fire. Yes. For the high rise, right? So so how this works, you're, you become battalion chief, you're citywide relief. Uh, now, as a captain, I had spent some time downtown as well uh, before I got. You know, my first, but I was first district relief as a captain, so I got a little taste of high rise there. Truck 22, I mean, it's not downtown high rises, but it's on the they lakefront, got a, they got so a, they, they got, got a lot, lot of, yeah. yeah. So we did some high rise fires down there. 
So I, I dabbled in the thing during the course of my career. Um, I finally find my assignment as a battalion chief is the 4th Battalion, which is right on the periphery or at, at that time of downtown, Engine 18's house at the time. I don't know right. what battalion is now. but um, So now I am starting to you know respond to downtown high-rise fires. So get, getting a little more interested, paying attention to it. Uh, Cook County building happens. Uh, shit hits the fan. Um, Cortez Trotter, regardless of what you think of him, and I don't know how much of this was his instigation. I wasn't high enough in the food, food chain at the time. Uh, but we're going to revamp, rewrite, redo all the high-rise. After, after the fire. Yeah, post. And if, can you walk us through that, that fire? Uh, there so, were a, a lot of things happened that, that we changed because of that fire. Like everything. You, you rewrote the entire incident command policy for high-rises. And for but what the, it's worth, it way, needs to be rewritten again. Cause even the way the, the high-rises are... Like built and the like the, well, with the doors not being able to lock. The, uh, yeah, there were code changes that happened not nearly enough. If you ask me, that's just yeah. personal opinion. But yeah, you know, there, it it came. It's one of those things that's interesting. I don't know if other states like this. Illinois is funny. That's a state building, right? So they really don't have to comply to the city building code. They but to, people died in the stairwell. They died in the stairwell. They were remote from the fire, and and part of the the. You know, political aftermath of all that is we didn't really we didn't find them until we were picking up from the incident, right, basically. Right. right. So so that makes it that's egg on our face on top of everything else. It shouldn't happen to begin with, but then you know that we didn't know this, right? So uh, the the fire department and I, I don't know that Trotter was the guy that made this happen but he's the boss he's the guy in charge so even if he didn't instigate it or initiate it his he, name's on it he let well you know right because if the boss gets in the way i mean mm -hmm. I, I think he deserves a lot of the credit and and i like i said i'm not high enough on the few food chain to say specifically this is the guy that pulled the trigger but it happened on his watch and he made the change um and so they rewrote the high-rise instant command policy and going to put everybody through this big giant high-rise training process well, I happened to be a high-rise battalion chief at the time. I had some training experience. I had been down to the academy a couple of times. And I had been trying to get into the little secret society, and I'm saying that with a smile, <laughs> that is the Illinois Fire Service Institute, uh, for some time and hadn't quite been able to pull the trigger on that. But all of a sudden, there's a bigger need because we hired them in a sense, right, to do the training, right? There's just part of how to make the whole thing happen in a timely fashion. So I got picked up into that group that did the training for the, high, you know, the new high-rise incident command policy. So, you know, the way things work in the fire service, and you know, now I'm a high-rise expert because <laughs> I did that, right? Um, so shortly thereafter, um, underwriters laboratories um, and this is like a whole nother story that folds into this one is starting to look at uh, high-rise fires that are affected by wind right you get up really high and, and you get yeah. those high wind speeds and so New York's interested Chicago's interested so because now I'm a high-rise expert wrote a couple articles of wrote, like wind-driven fires yeah talk, and, that, and that was subsequent to the NIST it was NIST that initiated it not, not you all you all got folded into it later but NIST instituted that, you know, looking into wind-driven fires and high-rises, and New York was behind that. We got sucked into that as well. Um, so, so part of what happened, how this 
came about for me personally was uh, Rich Edgeworth is the guy that's the director of training at the time. I'm a battalion chief in the 4th District. Um, NIST is in Toledo, Ohio, uh, doing these positive pressure experiments in stairwells, but blowing air in, into stairwells. And New York's going to be there, and Toledo's going to be there, and somebody else is going to be there, and Chicago needs to have somebody there. Hey, Pete, can you go? Right? <laughs> not Las Vegas, not Boca Raton, not Hawaii, not you know, Toledo. Toledo fucking Ohio, right? <laughs> so Pete gets to go. But that's where I meet Dan Madrakowski, Steve Kerber, and a bunch of other people that are running these experiments. George Healy from New York, John Cirillo from New York. Who, John's the, the captain of uh, Rescue One now. George Healy's a deputy chief um, for FDNY. And they're all still involved in this group with UL and, and doing this research into fire behavior, fire dynamics, and how can we do our job more effectively. That's a, how, how do we, what, what can they as engineers, as research engineers, what can they do to assist us to make better decisions on the fire ground? And that's all they're, they're trying to do. They don't want to rewrite your policies. They're not going to try to teach you how to put out fires. That's, that's our job. Their job is, is to give us information you can't get on the fire. Because if you can't measure something, it's not information. It's experience and it's valuable, but it's not information. It's only when you can measure it and repeat it, right? We think this happened. We can't go repeat that fire. They can. Right? And they, and they say, yeah, that is what happened. Or no, it's not what you think you saw. There was something else going on. Right? So, so there's all kinds of interesting stuff that they can develop for us and give us. Right? Yeah. So I got engaged in all that probably was it 14 years ago now, something like that. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. Do you remember what some of the changes that came about that fire specifically? Like what what Chicago does on high-rise fires. So, so the, the big thing was, uh, from my perspective, doubling up the response, basically. I mean, we front-end, front-load the response, which is the right thing to do. You've got yeah. this huge building. you got no idea. You don't wait to see what you got. You send the cavalry on the first alarm. Uh, got smoke showing? Box it. No, no, take the decision away from... That's a Ray Hoff kind of thing, right? Take this decision away from that company also. No, you get a box. Right, so there's no peer pressure about did you really need it or no. You get in the box. Um, the the whole rapid ascent team. Right. So so occupy the stairwells, um, and that's you know I hinted earlier. I said I think it needs to be revised again. There might be a better way to do that. Having done it now for you know a decade or two or whatever, um, but the important you have to occupy. You have to realize in these buildings you have to occupy the entire building. You you really do, and. And essentially, that's the approach, right? Bring enough resources so we can occupy the entire building long enough to understand what's really going on here and how big a problem we have. Because 10 cents worth of fire can kill dozens of people in a high-rise building. Because yeah. it doesn't go out the roof. It just keeps going up the building, right? Yeah. The roof is 60 stories up or more, uh, and that becomes a big part of the problem. Uh, so that that's what that change was. I mean, the minute is, is whatever that is. But the big change was front-load this thing with a lot of resources Give everybody assignment. Don't not literally everybody, but give all those first two companies an assignment so that all these areas are being covered. Don't leave it up to that first in decision maker to figure that out. Plug those, you know, spots for him or her. Um, so I, that was the big change. Yeah. Uh, before I forget, give us give us some information on uh, what you're doing now. What I'm doing now, I'm working really hard at retirement. It's a lot yeah. more work well, than you it, think it is. Yeah, it, it, you know. So I'm all greasy, I'm dirty, I got this crap on. So I, I, what I'm doing right now is trying to get a, a brake controller on my Jeep 
and finding the right way to tie that into my 1977 Wander Lodge <laughs> RV so that I can start traveling more. You need uh, an, an electrician, huh? Uh, no, I need somebody that knows the air brakes. Dude, I got the whole thing installed. It's an air-operated system. I got a buddy, Jim Dominic, retired chief of Wilmot Fire Department, who's uh, a, a true renaissance man. He's a buddy of mine. He's part of the UL group as well. Uh, he's a pilot. Uh, you know, and, and so he's got a hanger with a bunch of tools in it. So we were up there installing this thing. Uh, but what I'm doing fire service-wise, uh, I'm um, I'm a member with Jim and a couple other guys of Polaris Public Safety. Um, and we're just doing whatever consulting we, we can pick up and, and training we can pick up, right? How can, if somebody wants to um, <coughs> get a hold of you guys for some consultant work, how can they get a hold of you? P. Van Dorp at PolarisPublicSafety.com. Yeah. And uh, probably even bigger than that, I know we're trying to wrap up here, but I'm, I'm uh, president of the International Society of Fire Service Instructors. And uh, that's an organization not really well known in the Midwest, but nationwide, uh, pretty pretty well known. And we, our job is to try to, you know, as an instructor in the fire service, particularly mid-sized, smaller fire departments, when when that chief makes you the instructor and says, "Okay, revamp that training program," where do you go? Uh, I would say you go to us because uh, we've got a membership of fifteen hundred guys or so that have been there and done that. Right? So you guys can kind of help uh, navigate those. Waters for you, setting together. You a need a new pro training program. Here it is, right? You you need some help navigating this thing. You need a mentor. We can provide you with a mentor. You need some professional development. A matrix. We're developing professional development matrix. It says, you know, what do I need to do next to develop my career? We can give you that. You need somebody to talk to, to bitch at, whatever. You can do that. <laughs> What's the name of that company again, Chief? It's it's not company. It's a it's a uh, not for profit. Well, you know, it's International Society of Fire Service Instructors. It's a member driven organization. Costs a buck and a quarter to be a member, or you can be a department member. Are you familiar with it? You're nodding your head there a little bit, Nick. Yeah, I okay. I never heard of this. But uh, we're gonna make Nick uh, get a consultation from yeah, you guys. Yeah. What? So uh, <laughs> that, but I mean, really, and we're very successful when when we do manage to reach somebody and, and help them out. Uh, well, you got a ton of experience in that group, right? Yeah. Well, I've, I've been with them since I became director of training. That's when somebody logged me into, hey, you know, you ought to be part of this. These guys. And I tell you what, I mean, you know, like I said, we got guys from FDNY, we got guys from Boston, we got guys from Big Sky Montana. You can't get much smaller than Big Sky Montana. <laughs> um, we got guys from Germany, we got guys from the Netherlands, we got a couple guys from Canada, and they're just guys that are, you know, how it goes in the fire service. You find these people, you're really passionate about the rescue thing and the dogs, and you know, and you find these guys that are really passionate about the whole instructor thing and, and you know they've been through this right where they had to figure it out themselves and it really sucked and they really suffered through it and they don't want you to have to suffer through it so they're willing to help you out a little bit and that's that's what we try to do okay well you got anything else here Nick? well seeing as i'm filling <laughs> in for Corey, yep I'm, uh, uh, here we go i don't have the voice <laughs> but Corey, if you're listening i have to ask the question so best prank played on you or you played on someone in the firehouse. Uh, Thirty-three years on the city. You got to have a good I, prank. I guarantee you, ha you have some truck twenty-two pranks I, from back in the day. Yeah, but I don't want to go to jail, <laughs> and I don't want anybody else to go to well, jail. If we, let's use the term allegedly. Yeah. So <laughs> allegedly. So there. It, it would take me a long time to think about the best one, but the ones that, that pop into mind. There, were, there was a when foam started coming onto the rigs, right? You know, so dyeing the foam green and then 
you know, flooding your neighboring firehouse with foam, with green foam <laughs> on St. Patrick's Day. That kind of, you know, that went on for a couple of years. I've never heard of that. Uh, yeah. Um, another one, and this this was this actually kind of sucked. I don't know why somebody thought this was funny, but we, we would go steal their refrigerator and put it on the roof of our firehouse <laughs> and spray paint, you know, 83 on the, on the refrigerator or something like that. And I'm not, I, I'm not even sure how why that started or how that started. Um, that would piss a lot of guys off. Well, I mean, because you could do some damage to their food. You know, I mean, that could end up costing real money, right? At that, you know. But uh, if you plugged it in and you that's well, how they had to go to yeah. get to the fridge. Yeah. Now you got yourself a joke. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure was the intent. Nobody intended to, you know, but it it, it led to some. Anybody bad. can ruin the food. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You know, hand, we used to always carry hand cans, and we weren't riding inside cabs at the time, so hand cans full of whatever, you know, as you pass the other company uh, <laughs> was was common. Um, you know, the rigs at the time, when you had the old manual transmission forwards, you could pump and roll it, you know. I mean, you could make that work. It wasn't designed to work that way, but you put it in gear, and you could just roll past the firehouse, and you could, you know, cover their apparatus floor with green foam. <laughs> so that kind of stuff went on now see that's real engineering right there that's real engineering and then (laughs) things that um don't really qualify as pranks but you know so so you had early coming on the job you had the scba guys versus the non-scba guys um and so i don't know the the guys i I don't want to give his name out but his initials were roger zinchuk and and, (laughs) you know roger some, somebody would say, well, you get up behind the guy with the SCB and you shut off his bottle and then oh, he'll give up no. the line, right? Roger said that takes way too much time. At the time, we had the MSAs, uh, MSAs with the tubes, you know, not, not the, right? And he just reached around and pinched that tube on the guy. The guy would take a, you know, lose his air, drop the line, try to figure out what's going on. Roger would pick up the pipe and walk him <laughs> go. You know? So, you know, and Roger would also like to say, and he kind of meant it. And, and if you understand the context, I mean, he said, so, so here's all you have to know about tactics. Put a line on this side and a line on that side. May the best man win. <laughs> that was, yeah, well, he wasn't necessarily wrong. Right? No, no. <laughs> Get well, a lot of water on the fire and have it out. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on. Glad we finally, uh, we had planned this uh, earlier. We had a little miscommunication, but yeah. it all worked out. I and, forgot I uh, had to show up somewhere. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know what? That's a testament that you're enjoying your retirement. It's, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was amazing to sit here and have a glass of whiskey with you. It's great. And you got good a- whiskey here too. Well, so thank you. It's uh, kind of what we're known for. But uh, thank you, uh, Nick. I can't thank you again for uh, filling in for Corey. No problem. And, um, Anytime. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Vince. Yeah, appreciate it. And um, if uh, you want to give that, uh, you want to get Polaris uh, that e- Polaris email out again one last time before we leave. Sure. It's it's Polaris Public Safety. Um, and if you Google that, you'll get the you know, okay. the website. So. Uh, well, thank you again. Uh, that's Chicago's Bravest Stories. Cool. Hey, guys. Uh, you know what? We're just going to talk a minute about this awesome beer we've been drinking from Illuminate Brew Works. Um, right now, I'm, I'm drinking Trust. And uh, this thing is it's just a really good lager. Um we're going we're kind of running the gauntlet here we got some uh we got some awesome beer here so we're just running through each one of them uh i tried vince you tried that orange sunshine too right orange sunshine is my new favorite summer beer yeah. thanks to brian at illuminated brew works 
if you guys are looking for an amazing craft beer, and you know, I'm not a big craft beer guy, and I was a little hesitant, and then when we started popping yeah. these things open, uh, it was like Christmas. Yeah, we, we've been firing pretty good on we, these things. We, <laughs> we, we've been going through these yeah. like so, crazy. Bar Chicago's Bravest Stories is doing all right over here. Right. Well, the Illuminated Brew Works beer has saved us from drinking all the whiskey that we have here because... Uh, We've been drinking more beer than we have whiskey. We might not even be whiskey guys anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, that Creeper one was pretty good too, right? Once Creeper was it. good. And we're fresh out of astronaut juice. In yeah, there. if we had astronaut juice, that is my top one uh, from these guys. If you're looking for an amazing craft beer, you can find it at Benny's Norwood Park Wine and Spirits Beer Temple, which is right down the street here from the studio. So if you're uh, picking up some Illuminated Brew Works at Beer Temple, stop in, have a drink with us. Bottle and cans, uh, Capones, Totos, and Ryan's, Rayans, R-A-Y-A-N-S. Yeah, these are all bars they're selling in. And uh, you guys would notice it for sure once you walk in because they've got some really cool artwork on each of their cans. Um, so, again, just, just look for the, the eye-popping uh, artwork that you're going to see, and they'll kind of lead you over. Again, this is Illuminated Brew Works. Make sure to check out anything that they've made so far because everything I've tried has been awesome. Oh, it, it's really good. If you go to uh, that place, Wine Styles, at 6182 North Northwest Highway, you can pick it up. And coincidentally, that is right next door to where the new brew pub is going to be. Illuminated Brew Works is opening up a brew pub at 6186 North Northwest Highway. It's going to be amazing. The beer is amazing. And we are also asked to mention that the new Brony is coming back out. It's a double hop IPA. So for you IPA guys, the Brony is coming back. But the the beers that he has in stock right now are amazing. Uh, Illuminated Brew Works. Thanks, Brian, again for uh, you know keeping us in beer here. And you know when our guests come in and stuff like that, we give it to them as well. And we've heard nothing but great things from uh, our guests who've uh, walked out of here with a four pack of uh, Illuminated Brew Works. Thanks, guys. Again, make sure to check them out. Illuminated Brew Works. The opinions and views are that of Chicago's bravest stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations.